How are you this morning? Thank you, David. David is delightful. Danny's good. I hope you're all, uh, as Danny and uh, David are, delightful and good. My name is Robert, one of the pastors here at Christ Fellowship Northwest. And uh, our four and five-year-olds are are exiting right now. I'll go ahead and dismiss them. If you haven't gotten up, they're going to go with our uh, Christ Fellowship Kids volunteers to some age-appropriate teaching. So uh, if you're still in your seat, four and five-year-olds, feel free to get up and make your way to your leaders in the back. Um, As I said, my name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here, and really glad that uh, you're here this morning. Um, uh, For all of the Christ Fellowship folks, uh, had a great time at Men's Retreat uh, this uh, this weekend. Uh, We're going to talk about vanity here in a minute, and I played 38 holes of disc golf and got a uh, an illustration for you in vanity, me playing disc golf. I think I hit every tree on the course. Uh, Ethan is laughing back there because he watched it happen in real time. Every tree, every ditch, every, uh, every piece of water on the property, I landed a disc in it. It was, uh, it was lots of fun, lots of fun. Uh, I'm sure, God willing, we'll be doing that again next year and love for you, every guy in the room, to be a part of, of Men's Retreat. Uh, go ahead and take your Bibles, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. As Daniel said, we, uh, we kicked off a brand new sermon series that we're calling Simple Pleasures, and I'm going to pick that back up this morning in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 1. We'll, uh, we'll work through verses 1 through 11 this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Uh, let's read together verses 1 through 2 to start with. The words of the preacher, the son of David, King in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Man, that's a way to open a sermon, isn't it, right? That's a way to open a sermon. Uh, Yeah, so I think it would probably be fun this morning to go around the room and uh, interview all of you and find out who among us are the optimists, who among us are uh, the pessimist. Like, I imagine that some of you in this room this morning are, are certainly uh, optimists. You are, uh, you're not just a glass half full kind of people. You are glass half full of freshly squeezed lemonade on a bright sunny day with a rainbow in the sky over your head. You're that kind of optimist, right? You're that kind of optimist. And here's the deal. We need more people like you in the world, more rainbow in the sky, freshly squeezed lemonade optimists. But I'm sorry to tell you this morning that the writer of Ecclesiastes, he is not, uh, he's not that kind of guy. He is not um, optimistic, I guess uh, you could say. If he ever owned a pair of rose-colored glasses, maybe you're familiar with that song. If he ever owned a pair, he trashed them a long, long time ago, a long time ago. Uh, it's really safe for us to say that Solomon would not be the life of our party. We would not, this is not the guy that you want to invite to your parties, right? Um, now, you could say that he's a pessimist, as some of you probably are in this room. My wife would say that I'm probably a pessimist. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. You might say that he's a, a pessimist, that he's a glass-is-half-empty kind of guy. As we work through the book of Ecclesiastes, um, you're going to probably be tempted to think that he's like a glass of half-empty, a glass half-empty full of sour milk, right? He's, he's really, really dark, really depressing sometimes. But, but here's the deal with all pessimists, all true pessimists in the room, and I'll, I'll raise my hand as one, I guess. We don't really think of ourselves as pessimists, right? We're realists. Anybody, anybody echo that? I'm not a pessimist. There you go. Okay, we got, I'm a realist. I see the world as it really is. That's how I see Solomon. He's not a pessimist. He's a realist. 
He's calling life as he sees it, right? He's not, uh, he's not holding anything back. Whatever the case, pessimist or realist, the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, he wants to help us. That's the thing that we have to keep in mind as we work through Ecclesiastes. Solomon's goal is not to depress you. Solomon's goal is to help you, to help you, and in a weird kind of strange way, to actually encourage you, to actually encourage you. He wants to help us take an honest look at the world. Now, as a realist myself, I, I actually like taking real, hard, honest looks at things. That's what Solomon wants us to do. Right? Now, we need to be careful in another, another area as well. I'm not trying to suggest to you this morning that the rest of the Bible, with all of its talk of redemption, rescue, the promises, the Bible is full of promises that God made to his people, to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I'm not trying to suggest to you that the rest of the Bible is somehow trying to con us, right? Con us with pie in the sky, and that the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, is, is giving us the, the truth, as it were. I, I'm not suggesting that. No, Solomon wants to have an honest conversation with us, a real face-to-face, down-to-earth, honest conversation about life under the sun, As part of of human history, what is life really like? And he wants to talk about life under the sun, and to do that, we need to talk about vanity. Anybody ever heard the word vanity outside of what I just read to you in Ecclesiastes 1? The word vanity. We saw it in verses 1 through 2. Now, it's a notoriously hard word to define in the Bible. It's one of the most difficult. What does it mean? Often, You've probably heard it uh, defined from a a stage like this as meaninglessness. Meaninglessness. But I don't think that quite captures the true sense of what Solomon is teaching us this morning about vanity and that all is vanity. The, The word for vanity quite literally means vapor, breath, mist. It's a, it's a picture of flimsiness or wispiness, if you will. Like embers of a fire in fall that float up into the air and disappear as quickly as they appear. Vanity. They're, they're here for just a moment and gone the next. Uh, listen to the writer of Proverbs in Proverbs 21.6. He describes the, the pursuit of treasure by a lying tongue as a fleeting vapor. Vanity. The psalmist in Psalm 144.4 describes man as a breath, a passing shadow, vanity. But even more than just temporary, transient wispiness, vanity can also mean something that's absurd, right? something that is uh, unrealistic, ridiculous. We see this in Ecclesiastes 8.14 when Solomon points out the reality of life that sometimes righteous men get what unrighteous men deserve. That things don't always work out for the best for good people in the end. Right? And, and even more than absurd, this word vanity can also mean unable to satisfy. I like to think of it this way. Like a bag of Cheetos, you can eat the entire bag You can enjoy the entire glorious experience, licking your cheesy fingers and all. And at the end of the day, after you finish the entire bag, you're still hungry, right? You're still hungry. I'm not confessing, by the way, to ever have eaten an entire bag of Cheetos. We're going to talk about Oreos in a minute. That's uh, That's my vanity, is eating Oreos, right? Solomon wants us to see all of these things when we think of this idea of vanity, 
vanity. He wants us to face fully, take a hard look at the flimsiness, emptiness, and absurdity of life under the sun, of life in human history, of life as a creature in God's created world. If he's a pessimist this morning, we need to be clear about one thing. Solomon is not a pessimist about God. His pessimism, his sights are set firmly on you and me. They're set firmly on you and me. We're the ones that he doubts. Not God. Not what God is up to. We're the ones that Solomon has questions about. I wonder this morning, have you ever, uh, have you ever unknowingly, right? I don't want you to admit to a crime. There are police officers in the room. Have anyone ever unknowingly received a counterfeit bill? Anybody? A counterfeit bill and then tried to spend it. Bank tellers in particular are not very delighted when you try to pass them a counterfeit bill, especially you try to deposit one, right? In Ecclesiastes 1, I think it's very helpful to think of Solomon as an astute bank teller, a very astute, well-trained bank teller who knows how to spot a fake a mile away. Here we are, we enter his bank We slide our stack of bills, our life's fortune, if you will, under his bank teller window. Our life's fortune, all those things in our lives, all of our experiences, all of our pursuits, all those things that we put our hope in, our trust in, all those things that we look to for satisfaction and delight, we slide our stack of bills under his teller window. He picks up one of our bills. He peers over his thin rimmed glasses as he holds the bill up to the light. And then he gives us this look. He knows. He knows the thing that we all are oblivious to. He knows that we've been duped by fakes. We've been duped by counterfeits. In our pursuit of meaning and purpose in life under the sun, the thing that Solomon wants to teach us this morning, kind of the the main idea that we're going to run after this morning, is that we have all been duped by counterfeits. We've all been duped by counterfeits. Now, to do this, Solomon has three truths that he wants to teach us. Three truths that he wants to teach us. You're going to see them up there on the screen. The first is this, um, and I promise they're going to make sense as we go along. All your top scores will be erased. All your top scores will be erased. That's, That's truth number one. Truth number two, the earth is caught in a boring frenzy. A boring frenzy. Truth number three, history is stuck on repeat. History is stuck on repeat. Those are the three things we're going to run after this morning. This idea that we've all been duped by counterfeits. All your top scores will be erased. The earth is called in a boring frenzy. And history is stuck on repeat. Read along with me, verses 3 through 4 of Ecclesiastes 1. It's going to be on the screen as well. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Now, I told you that first truth is that all of your top scores will be erased. Now, you could, you could summarize all of chapter 1. You could summarize all of chapter 1 with the question that Solomon poses in verse 3 of Ecclesiastes 1. 
What is to be gained, Solomon says, by all this toil, all this toil in life under the sun? Now, if you're like me, when you read toil there, maybe you've read it this week, you read it for the first time this morning, if you read toil, you immediately think of work. You think of your job, the thing that you do from, from 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. And that's not wrong. That's not, that's not wrong. It's, it's actually right. Right? Because of the fall, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, humanity's work is fallen. Right? Work is hard. Listen to Genesis 3, 17 through 19. This was after the curse, after Adam and Eve's fall. God curses uh, humans, particularly Adam. He says this, he says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. What's going on there is, is God is, is cursing uh, humanity's work. You can work your whole life striving, laboring, sweating, exhausting your mind, your body, only to have, in Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes, all your achievements squandered by the fool who takes your place after you die. I told you, Solomon's a depressing kind of guy, right? But toil, toil is much more than work. We can't limit toil to work in Ecclesiastes. It includes all of our strivings. All of our chasings, all of our endeavors, all the things that we put our minds and our bodies to do, there's toil in learning, right? Just ask a college student, right? Any college students agree with that? There's toil in learning. There's toil in raising, raising children. Ask any mom in the room and they will say amen to that. There is toil in raising children. There's toil in golf. Daniel and I played golf earlier in the week and he will attest that there is toil when Robert plays golf. Also, when Robert plays Frisbee golf, there is toil. Toil. And Solomon, he asked this probing question. In life under the sun, what's to be gained by all of it? What do you gain at the end of the day? When the, when the, the sums are added up, what's to be gained? When I was a kid, uh, there, was a, there was a movie theater. Uh, so I grew up in Pickens, South Carolina, uh, we would always go into Easley to go to the movies. There was a movie theater there called the Colony Theater, right? And uh, in the summertime, you could go see a movie for a dollar, for a buck. So often, my mom would take me and my friends to go see uh, a movie at the Colony Theater. And, and, and when I say, like, you know, uh, a dollar movie, it was a dollar movie for a reason. Because the seats were all broken. There was, like, mold growing on the curtains. I mean, it was a, it was a dumpy place. But the thing that the Colony Theater had that, that I thought was awesome is it had an arcade. It had an arcade, and there was this one game that my friends and I loved to play. And every now and then, when my mom would take us to a movie, my sister and my mom would want to see some girl movie, and he would let, he would let, she would let me and my friends go play in the arcade. And this game was called Revolution X, and it was a shooter game. The, the gun was actually attached to the arcade, and it, it vibrated when you shot. And uh, I can't tell you over the, over the course of several summers how much money I wasted um, I had a little grass-cutting business on the side. I can't tell you how much grass-cutting money I wasted pumping quarters into this game to try to get a top score, to try to get my name at the very top of the list. And one glorious summer day, me and my buddy, we did it. We did it. We reached the very top of that list on the game of Revolution X. We were the highest-scoring uh, players it was spectacular. It was awesome. And then two weeks later, we go back, and some dude, I don't even know his name. I don't care what his name is. He had replaced us. My top score was now, I think, like the third top score, right? 
In just a few weeks, all of this money, all of this effort, all of this time was just a race by some punk that I don't even know, right? <laughs> Gone, never, never to get again. Right? What is to be gained in life under the sun, Solomon asked. In the end, what will you have to show for all that time and effort spent getting a thousand likes on TikTok or Instagram? Someone else will just get a thousand and one. Drinking uh, protein shakes, which you see I clearly do not do, but drinking protein shakes and working out endlessly, right, to get the perfect abs or the perfect biceps. Someone will have better abs. Someone will have bigger biceps. Chasing the biggest bass, the lowest golf handicap. Someone will play golf better than you. They'll catch bigger fish than you. Reaching the top of the sales team, right? What's to be gained by reaching the, the, the heights of the corporate ladder, by getting that bonus or that promotion? Right? What's to be gained in it all? Solomon says in verse 4, ultimately, you gain nothing. Generations come and generations go, he says. The, the psalmist, he kind of helps us understand what Solomon, Solomon is saying there in Psalm 90.10. The years of our life, the psalmist says, are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone, and we fly away. A generation comes, a generation goes. All our lives and experiences, all the events that you're thinking of right now that you are sure are memorable, that you'll never forget, that are certainly written down in some history book somewhere, they will all be erased. They will all be written over by some punk that you don't even know his name. Right? You don't even like him. You don't even know him. My friends, we are seeking fulfillment in purpose and meaning in all of these things, in all of our strivings and achievings. And Solomon says we've been duped. We've been duped by counterfeits. None of them will satisfy, satisfy us. All of them will ultimately be erased. That's the first truth. The second truth is that the earth is caught in a boring frenzy. Solomon, he is, he is more than he wants to show us. He's a, uh, Solomon is like a, a really good doctor, right? A really good doctor. No matter how bitter the medicine is to taste, right? He is going to be sure that we drink it all to the bottom, right? We're going to drink all of this. If we stand to gain nothing in life under the sun because all of our top scores, all of our achievements will ultimately be erased, we also stand to gain nothing from life under the sun because the earth is caught in this boring frenzy. Boring frenzy. Read with me Ecclesiastes 1, verses 4 through 8. A generation goes and a generation comes but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Now, this might seem a bit strange to you, right? What in the world do I mean by the, the earth is caught in a boring frenzy? Well, I, I think, I, well, I know I mean exactly what I, what I think you think I mean by boring. Dull, tedious, 
monotonous? Have you ever met someone? Have you ever met someone who could, uh, he could see the problem in anything? She could see the, the problem, find the bad in almost any life situation. As I said, my wife often accuses me of being that, that kind of person. Uh, I can tend to uh, be hypercritical. I have the ability to see situations in the worst possible light. Solomon is like that, only he's a master. He's a master of gloom and doom. But the thing that we need to see is that he is taking that perspective on purpose on purpose. Let me try to illustrate to you what he's seeing, what he's saying here in these verses. One of the most uh, beautiful sunsets that I have ever seen, uh, I don't know if you've ever hiked Mount LeConte on the border between North Carolina and Tennessee. Uh, I was able to do it several years back with some friends, and uh, we, we hiked to the top, and we got to the top uh, right, as, right about the time the sun began to set. And I, I'll never forget seeing that particular sunset on top of the mountain. The air was clear. There was uh, a beautiful view, right? The, the reds, the oranges, the yellows, they, they filled the sky. It was the kind of thing you look at, and you just stand in awe of the beauty of it all. And then... As the sun began to set over the horizon and twilight came, all of those oranges and reds, they began to, to mix with the blues and the blacks and the purples of night. And then it was dark and it was quiet. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful sight. What Solomon wants us to do is he wants to say to us, he says, hold up, look at that again. Look at that again. The sun... The sun, it's just setting to rise again. It's just setting to rise again in the morning. It's like a runner. It's like a runner running endless laps around a track. Literally, the sun is panting, he says there in the original language. Panting for breath as it arrives at its destination, only to set out around the track again. Again and again and again. Boring. Or consider the ocean. My wife and I got to go uh, to Mexico on our honeymoon. One of the most beautiful uh, parts of the, the Caribbean is the, the turquoise waters. I stood on the white sandy beaches and looked out over the ocean, beautiful, clear turquoise water that you can see all the way to the bottom. It's gorgeous. And Solomon says, okay, but, but look again. All rivers, Solomon says, flow into that ocean. They, they flow into the ocean, but the ocean is never full. It's never full. It's always thirsty, flowing, flowing, flowing. Solomon says, in a frenzy, every day, without fail, flowing into the ocean, that's always thirsty for more. Boring. Boring. A boring frenzy the earth is called in. All things, Solomon says in verse 8, are full of this, this weariness, this drop dead into bed at the end of the day because you can't take any more kind of weariness. The kind of tired, maybe you've known it before, that affects not just your body but your mind, your soul. You ever been so tired that you can't sleep? Everything in the entire creation, Solomon says, is caught in this unending frenzy of a life-siphoning monotony. Just boring, boring. And when confronted with it, Solomon says in verse 8 that man, that we're speechless in front of it. 
Nothing under the sun can soothe our weary souls. Nothing we see or hear under the sun will ever satisfy our heart's longing, our heart's desires. Not even these created things, these things that God uh, created for our good, the sun, the moon, the stars, all of these good things, Solomon says, they can't satisfy you. Moses says it this way in Deuteronomy 4, verse 19. Beware, beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord God has allotted to all the peoples of the, under the whole heaven. This frenzy that the entire creation is caught in, this frenzy of, of more and ceaseless motion, it's never satisfied. It's always moving. That's why one Oreo is never enough, right? As, long, as well as the entire pack, right? Anyone guilty of ever eating an entire sleeve of Oreos? My wife and I have to hang our heads in shame for that one, right? It's never enough. Did you know that the average American touches his or her smartphone over 2,000 times a day? 2,000 times a day. I think the actual number is like 2,164. Don't, don't quote me on that. It's over 2,000 times a day that you touch your smartphone. As one author says it, he says, we carry around in our pockets our own little personal dopamine injectors, right? Little dopamine injectors, and we're constantly looking like junkies for the next fix, right? We scroll our social media feeds to the next photo, to the next video, or the next advertisement for some piece of junk that we don't really need. We probably already have five of, right? Endless, ceaseless motion. None of it ever satisfying. Summer breaks are always too short, aren't they? The school year, it's always too long. The beach, it's always too hot. The mountains, they're always too cold never satisfied. When it's sunny, we miss the rain. We complain about not having rain. When it's raining, we complain, when is the sun going to come out? Our pursuit of more, our ceaseless motion, all of it is exhausting. Yet we're never satisfied. We're all stuck on this spinning rock, Solomon says, hurtling through space, Thousands of miles an hour in orbit around the sun, round and round we go. Where we stop, nobody knows. Nobody knows. And if we're looking for meaning and purpose here in this frenzy, in this madness, Solomon says we've been duped by a counterfeit. We've been duped by a counterfeit. That's the second truth. There's one more. There's one more part of this really sour, bitter medicine that Solomon says we have to take. We have to take it. And it's this, that history is stuck on repeat. History is stuck on repeat. Read along with me, Ecclesiastes 1, 9 through 11. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It, is all, it has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. 
You see, not only is our striving to get ahead, all of this ceaseless motion, all of this achieving, right? This endless frenzy of boredom. Not, all of it, not only is all of it vanity, but all of history, it turns out, just stuck on repeat. The, the last part of verse 9 might be one of the most popular and well-known verses in the Bible. There is nothing new under the sun. If you haven't read the Bible before, you haven't grown up in church, you've probably heard that passage. There's nothing new under the sun. And, and if, you're, if you're thinking critically about what Solomon's saying here, you might say at this point, like, hold up, Solomon. What do you mean there's nothing new under the sun? Solomon, what about cars, right? What about uh, airplanes, cell phones, right? I think it's all safe to say that Solomon did not have Verizon 5G in his day, right? What are you talking about? Nothing new under the sun. But before we, uh, we call Solomon out, we need to slow down. Because I don't think that's what he's talking about. I don't think he's talking about you know, uh, new technology, new things. Here's what I think he means. Since the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden, when, when our, uh, our human uh, forefather and foremother first sinned, Nothing has fundamentally, that's a key word, fundamentally changed about the human existence. Right? Think about it with me for a moment. All humans, since Adam, we live, we eat, we sleep, we work, we fall in love, we get married, we build houses, we raise families, we face joy, sorrow, pain, and struggle along the way. And then you know what happens? We die. We die. Sure, uh, folks like Steve Jobs and Apple, Jeff Bezos and Amazon, Elon Musk at Tesla, they've made it a little more fancy along the way. They've, they've made it a little bit more convenient. But at the end of the day, the human condition remains unchanged. Right? We live, we die. Solomon says in verse, in verse 11, the problem is, the, the reason why we think that there are new things under the sun is because we have short memories, that our, our memories are actually very, very short. Those who came before us, they were forgotten. They lived, they died, and they were forgotten. Those who come after us, they will live, they will die, and they will be forgotten. I'll give you an example of this this morning. A question. Have you ever heard of a guy named Philo Farnsworth? I'm curious. Seriously, if you've heard of him, I'd like for you to raise your hand. Philo, I won't call on you. Okay, we've got a few people that have heard of Philo Farnsworth. But, but looking around, there was only two. Philo Farnsworth. I certainly had not heard of him until this week. But as it turns out, he created something that my guess is you use every single day. Every single day. Probably multiple times a day. Back in 1927, when he invented it, he called it the image dissector. The image dissector. You call it today the television. The television, right? Philo Farnsworth. Who has heard of Philo Farnsworth? Very few people have heard of Philo Farnsworth. The Westinghouse Corporation tried to buy his patent, and he decided that he would try to market this image dissector on his own, and you see how that turned out for him, right? I'm standing in front of a room full of people who probably all own televisions, have at least watched a television, and almost none of us had ever heard of this guy's name. I mean, this, is the, this guy's name should be right up there with um, Thomas Edison, right? Inventor of the light bulb, inventor of the TV, and never heard of him. We live, we die, and we're forgotten. 
There's nothing new under the sun. And then the cycle of history just repeats itself. It just repeats itself. No matter how great your achievements or your contributions, you will die and be forgotten. Man, that's depressing. That is depressing. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing under the sun that can break this cycle that we're trapped in of living, dying, and being forgotten. History is stuck on repeat. And if we're looking for meaning here, amidst this endless cycle, we've been duped by a counterfeit. Now, I read this, and what I want to say is like, geez, Solomon. Like, geez, like what? You're depressing. But don't miss what he's doing. Don't miss what he's doing. Remember, I told you in the beginning, Solomon is out for our good. No matter how bitter the medicine, we have to take it. We have to take an honest look at life under the sun. Solomon is out for our good. He's confronting us with all of the counterfeits that we've placed our hope and our our longing for meaning and satisfaction in. Solomon wants to help us. If we're going to experience joy in this life filled with futility, with vanity, we must face the truth about the reality of life under the sun, right? Namely, that all our top scores are going to be erased, right? That the earth is caught in this boring frenzy and that all of history is stuck on repeat. We have to face that reality, Meaning, purpose, and satisfaction cannot be found here. Every day we put weight on created things that they were never meant to carry. They were never meant to carry. Your phone, your spouse, your kids, your stuff. Just take all of your stuff and group it into a big category. Your stuff your money, your striving for importance. None of it, Solomon says, will give you ultimate purpose and satisfaction. It will all leave you empty and wanting for more, like that whole package of Oreos, right? So where do we find it? If purpose and meaning and satisfaction are not found here in life under the sun, where do we go to find it? We have to have it. Our souls crave it. They itch for it. We have to have it. Where do we go to find it? That's the question that Ecclesiastes 1 begs us to ask. And Solomon's going to give us an answer to it. But he's not going to give us a quick answer. He's not going to give us a quick answer. He's going to just nudge us in the right direction as we work through the book of Ecclesiastes. Look at verse 13 for Solomon's little nudge. We're going to have to skip ahead a week. I know I'm only 1 through 11 this week, but I'm going to skip ahead to verse 13 to see Solomon's little nudge in the right direction. Verse 13, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Did you catch it? I'll read it again. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. God has given this unhappy business to us, this vanity, this chasing after the wind. Now, wait a minute. God did this? God did this. Now, before we go further, we've got to let that settle on us for just a moment. God is responsible for this. He is. 
he is. Now, it's probably, it's likely that there's someone in this room that I just said that. We just read verse 13. I just said that. And, and there's probably someone in this room that with their mind's finger, they've got it fully extended, pointed up to heaven saying, Aha, God, I've got you. All this mess, this is your fault. This is your fault. But lest we misjudge God, lest we misjudge him, I want you to consider something this morning. Consider something. Is a parent guilty of doing violence against a child if upon seeing a child playing in the street and a delivery truck barreling towards him, if the parent tackles the child onto the sidewalk and in the process of tackling the child breaks the child's leg? Is the parent guilty of doing violence against the child? Of course not. He was saving the child's life. He was saving his son's life. He was rescuing him. Here in Ecclesiastes 1, Solomon is pointing us to the truth that God has indeed subjected humanity and ultimately all of creation to this vanity, to an empty, no way to win life, to an endlessly repeating life of dissatisfaction to rescue us. That's right, to rescue us. He, the Apostle Paul helps us. Romans 8 18 through 24. It's worth reading the whole thing. Take a look. It's going to be on the screens. For I consider, this is Paul, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Now, we need to be clear. Paul is talking to Christians. He's talking to those who have placed their faith in Christ for forgiveness of sins. Paul says all of our suffering, and we can loop into that, all of this uh, living life, vain life under the sun. We can, we can group all of that in there. All of it is not worth the com comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation, Paul writes, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Here it is, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, similar word to vanity. They're connected, New Testament, Old Testament. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in what? In hope. In hope. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth till now. And not only the creation... We ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Paul says the creation groans. It groans under the weight of this futility and vanity that God has subjected it to. It groans under the weight of our broken world. Brokenness that we deserve, let's be clear, we deserve this life. We deserve much more than that, actually. This is brokenness we deserve. We deserve more. We deserve, we deserved instant damnation and destruction because of our sin. That's what God should have done. That's what God justly could have done. Right? 
But instead, and I argue in mercy, God subjected you and I, all of us as fallen men and women, creatures made in his image. God subjected you and I because of our sin to this vanity, to this ceaseless motion and unending dissatisfaction in hope. In hope that we might grow weary of trying to find purpose and meaning and satisfaction in all of these things in life under the sun. Weary of all the disappointment. Weary of all that distracts us from the one and only thing that can satisfy us, that can fill us, that can, that can stop the itch for more. The one who made us, God. My friends, that emptiness that we all feel when the entire package of Oreos is gone, right? maybe a little guilt in there too, the, when the vacation is over, you ever feel that? You get off a of vacation, you're like, man, why did that have to end? When we, uh, that emptiness we feel when we, we get another promotion and another bonus, only to look for a, another promotion and another bonus, right? The emptiness we feel when we get that trinket that we've longed for for some time, only to have it break the first time we use it. God has subjected us to all these things in mercy. One of my, one of my favorite authors, uh, I, I refer to him often, uh, C.S. Lewis, he, he writes in his book, Mere Christianity, he, I think he says it the best. I used to have this written in the front of my, my Bible, and then I got a new Bible, but I'll give you the quote. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. That's the point of all of this vanity, all of this struggling and striving and dissatisfaction. It points us to the one to whom we belong, the one who can satisfy us. You see, in mercy... God refuses to let his creatures find satisfaction in anything but him. He wouldn't be God if he did otherwise. He refuses to let his creatures find satisfaction in anything but him. Indeed, uh, the one and only truly new thing that has ever existed in life under the sun since Adam is God's true son, Jesus. Here's what I mean. Jesus was a new kind of human. He was separated from this life of vanity and toil and dissatisfaction. The Bible says that he was born of the Spirit, whereas we are all born of woman, right? Jesus was born of the Spirit. He was fully God and fully man. He came and lived in the middle of all of our vanity, all of our toil, all of our striving and ceasing, and he never sinned. He did what we could never do. He did what we fail to do on a daily basis. You see, Jesus is the son who stepped into the middle of the street and was crushed by the full force of God's wrath, the wrath that we all deserved. He was crushed so that we could be rescued. We limp on broken legs in a broken world in hope that we might know the son for whom God stayed on the sidewalk. The son God didn't rescue. The son who, as he hung on the cross, the father turned his face away. 
the father turned his face away as the full force of his wrath was cast upon him for all of our sins. Not his sin, all of our sin. So that in hope that we might find forgiveness for our sins and ultimately satisfaction for our restless hearts. I'll close with these words from Matthew 11, 28 through 30. They're, they're my wife's, it's my wife's favorite passage. It's growing on me. Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Would you pray with me? Father, it's a hard thing to take a hard look at life under the sun. It's a depressing thing just how broken and fallen our world is. But Father, I thank you for through the inspiration of the Spirit, men like Solomon have, have forced us to be confronted by just how broken we are. Forgive us for, uh, for underestimating the extent of our brokenness. Forgive us for all the ways that we look for satisfaction and purpose and meaning in life under the sun. Help us cast our eyes on Jesus and look to him as our source of, of satisfaction. Help us to see in him the only thing that will satisfy us and give us the peace and the rest that we so long for. I ask these things in his good name. Amen.